This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Another school year has begun. It should be an exciting time for students, parents, and educators to talk about what students will be learning over the course of the year. But for many, the conversation is not necessarily about learning, but about making the highest grade. There was a time when receiving a name meant that a student had excelled in their schoolwork. But now, getting an A means access to advanced classes, scholarships, and of course, college admissions. But with all this emphasis on grades, are students missing out on learning? Today, we're talking about grading, and we'll hear from one Connecticut school district that's changing the way they grade their students. And we want to hear from you too. Is grade anxiety keeping you or your student up at night? Let us know, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. And joining us now is Ethan Hutt. He's an associate professor of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and also author of Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning, But Don't Have to. Thanks so much for joining us this morning, Ethan. Great to be here. And we also have with us is Joe Feldman, who is the author of Grading for Equity and CEO of Crescendo Education Group, who partners with schools, districts, and universities across the country to help teachers use grading practices that's more accurate and equitable. Thank you so much for joining us this morning, Joe. Good morning. So, Ethan, I want to start with you. You know, how, how did you first get interested in this concept and idea of grading? Well, I think as someone who has been a student for a long time and now a university instructor, I mean, the experience of going to school is synonymous with grading. And um, as a historian of education, it just it struck me one day, like, where did all this come from? This is like the focal point of our system. Um, was it always like this? Does it have to be like this? And you start to when you start to look back, you realize, in fact, no, this is a pretty um, relatively recent inven invention, the way that we decide to grade and assess and communicate uh, about our students. And so I just really got fascinated by how we came to construct the, the current system that, you know, to talk about, as you said in your intro, to talk about schools is to talk about like, did you get an A? How well did you do? Um, it, it, you know, just becomes the whole part of schooling is, is grading. And so just following that thread and, and sort of seeing how we built the system has always been really fascinating to me. Well, just you mentioning, did you get an A, just gave me some flashbacks. So, but we're not going to get into that today. <laughs> um, and we're, of course, we're going to delve into deeper in, in terms of, you know, how the system came about and, and how do we go forward from there. But at, at this moment, what do we know about the anxiety and pressure that grading puts on students and parents and also their teachers? I mean, grades are such an important part of the day-to-day -day experience. And also when students think about you know, not just this assignment, but what about this class and how does this class relate to my educational career and my professional career? I mean, students are right that these are extremely high stakes uh, parts of our system and students have correctly perceived that we have, you know, in the U.S. we've created a system where almost all access to opportunity runs through our school system and often, especially for professional opportunities, it runs through getting into a good college and maybe a good grad school. And so that sense that, you know, I really need to make sure by whatever means that I'm doing the best in all my classes so I can preserve those opportunities. I mean, um, it's unfortunate, but that is that is the reality of the system that we've created. And so teachers feel it when they assign grades, student feel, students feel it when they complete assignments. Um, you know, grades really have become 
just you know a, a tremendous focal point in our system and so that anxiety is is real and it reflects the reality of of the consequences of the grades that we give when we assign our our students and when students take that report card home to their parents everyone is feeling the 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 pressure that's built around our our assessment system right and i'm really eager to get into the conversation about you know how did that start and it, it sounds like this is something that students experience very young you know is this across the board starting in elementary school and then leading up to college yeah, I mean, we know that opportunities are structured in our school systems around assessments. So sometimes standardized assessments um, for you know placement into an honors track or something like that. But you know, when you look across the the school system, you know, in almost all districts, they're using um, you know prior performance to track students to give them opportunities. And so, yeah, we see it very early on. Um, I mean, one trend that we've seen is even in kindergarten, we've seen the sort of academicization of of kindergarten where maybe it's a little less about um, play and sharing and more about, you know, making sure you're you're getting your skill set right so that you're on track for first grade. So, I mean, it's really gone all the way down through our system. And so students experience this really close. Uh, I mean, really early on, they experience it in middle school, for sure in high school. And so it really has come all the way through the through the system. And that's why, it's, I mean, we are, it's a cultural phenomenon. We are training students that when they think of schools, they should be thinking of their grades and how well they're doing. And that affects everything from how they approach their work, motivation, and again, how teachers approach their work um, when it comes to assessing students um, and and thinking about you know creating opportunities for them to learn. You know, it's it's everywhere in our system. And you know, you mentioned this a little bit earlier, but the big question I think today to ask is where does our grading system come from? You know, why do we have this sort of A to F model? And I think you already answered this question, but was it always this way? Yeah, I mean, so early on, the idea of of assigning a grade and having that grade have not just a communication between a teacher and a student or a teacher and a student and a parent, but the idea that the grade lives on in a permanent record, you know, that threat, you know, this is going to be on your permanent record is really, a, if you think about it, requires a, a really structured school system. So what it means when to give a grade on a report card that's permanent is that there's an audience for that grade far beyond um, just the individual assignment or the individual class what kind of lives on and someone else sees it and someone else sees it and someone can refer back to it. And that's really a mark of, of our modern school system. If you look in the 19th century, um, there were no grades at all. Often um, the way that a the parents or the public would assess a school is there would be an exhibition and, and students would gather and they would do recitations and they would do performances and they would show what they had learned that year and the public would just the assessment was just you know how they had performed that day um later you see that students uh you know the average class you know in the 19th century involved a series of of competitions during the day where students were assessed uh re relative to their peers you know, if you did well, you moved up a class or down a class if you did poorly. And the idea was that the the competition was sort of constant um, and it was it was ephemeral. So the next day you would start over, you would be in a new class, you'd be in a new assortment of, of students and it was ephemeral. Um, it was only later that educators, um, particularly Horace Mann, who people may be familiar with, who felt like that kind of like day-to-day -day competition, the sort of ephemeral nature of grading 
wasn't really helping students focus on the long term. And so this idea that we wanted to give a single grade uh, and memorialize that grade and help students focus on how they had, had done was really an attempt to get students to think about the longer trajectory of their educational career. The idea was to take it off of the day-to-day -day competition and make it a longer arc. I mean, we know it, that didn't work out exactly as planned, but the idea was that we needed really clear ways of communicating. And so people settled on the sort of A through F as a way of saying, just distill it down to one message. And the key is that that message then was was uh, carried a, a very clear uh, message to whoever received that. So, you know, the idea of, of narrative grades were, or where you would write it instead of a single letter was too hard for people to understand. And so this idea of like simplicity was really a function of like, uh, of how big the system got and how many people were receiving that information. And so we settled on a single grade as a way of just concisely distilling how how well a student had done. And, and so that's basically where our grading system comes from. And that's so fascinating that you say there's a sense of simplicity, but the, the system has gotten so complicated and there's so many layers. And and honestly, when you said public exhibition, I know there's a little bit of an irony because we're on air live on radio, but the idea of doing that for your grade is like a nightmare, I feel like, and very, very <laughs> stressful. <laughs> yeah, it was very stressful. And and students, you know, we know would, would panic and it wouldn't go well. Um, and also they would they were it was heavily scripted affairs so it was it was there was some gaming in in that exhibition as well so and did students know their grades or how how did that work so this is something that my students when i talk to them about their experience with grades and the history of grades are always surprised about but there was a time where um uh grades were secret and the the idea that grades were you know this sort of ever-present idea was um, was 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 not common. Um, so often early on in co colleges uh, like Yale and Harvard, um, the grades would be kept and known only to the faculty, and only later uh, the the only purpose really for keeping grades and keeping track of students' grades was to decide who would get the honor of being the graduation speaker, and so grades were just kept among the faculty and students had no idea, um, which from a pedagogical perspective, maybe wasn't the best because there was, you're, you're limiting the feedback and students aren't kind of aware of how they're doing. But this idea that like, oh, you do work and I give you a grade and that's kind of how education works um, is, you know, is not, uh, is not inherent. It doesn't have to be that way. And in fact, in the, in the 18th century, it wasn't, it was grades were secret. And can you talk about the value of earning a certain grade and how that has changed? Um, for example, I think receiving an A means that you've mastered over the material and it's something that you should celebrate, but now it's more like something you can use to to gain something, like college admissions, like we were talking about earlier. So what do grades communicate to students today? Yeah, I mean, unfortunately, and we talk about this a lot in the book, is grades now are often seen primarily by students um, for their their what we call exchange value. So it's not a reflection necessarily. The, the importance of the grade is not so much a reflection of what I've learned, but what achieving a certain score allows me to do in the future. So gain access to an AP class, uh, do well, improve my GPA so I can get into Yale. Um, so those kinds of things are, are much more important. And, and one of the things that's changed over time that's really significant is you know, at the beginning of the 20th century, very few students are going to high school, uh, even fewer are graduating from high school, and even fewer are going to college. So the idea that 
you know, the full range of grades might reflect some level of achievement relative to your peers, because not that many students have reached that that point in the in the educational system that really has changed once high school becomes universal and high school graduation itself is not necessarily a mark of distinction uh either socially or in the labor market you have increasing pressure to not just graduate high school but to graduate with honors or to graduate with a high gpa and so in increasingly students have seen that their grades are are important not just as reflections of what they've learned but as opening doors for them for themselves in their future and parents see that too when parents are upset about report cards often what we're hearing expressed is some level of anxiety around you know gee this uh mark is going to to forestall some future that i that i'm hoping uh will be available to you and so there's just tr a tremendous amount of anxiety and we have trained our students that that's how they should think about their grades as as being part of this longer arc of their career rather than being about um you know what they want to learn or what they did learn or how they're motivated to learn um it really crowds out the value of grades as feedback and it becomes more about grades as you know a token that can be exchanged for some future opportunity and so with this idea that, you know, a grade can make or break your opportunity and it, and it gives you so much anxiety and along the line, along those lines and with what you're saying, are we seeing parents and students sort of advocating for higher grades for themselves and almost like bargaining with teachers? That seems to be something that I've been hearing a lot from for all grade levels, really. Yeah, I mean, we do know that um, there's some some evidence, compelling evidence that um students in um you know higher socioeconomic schools we see more grade inflation so we see grade inflation basically everywhere we see more grade inflation at uh, schools with um, higher socioeconomic uh, status students um which we don't know exactly why that's happening but you know one good inference one good theory is that you know parents uh who understand the system are more likely to advocate for their uh, for their students, they're more likely to um, know that it's um, at least possible to ask a teacher to grade or maybe to, you know, suggest to the teacher the consequences or to remind the teacher of the consequences of the grade they've given. I mean, that's one of the hardest things as an instructor is, uh, you know, this these consequences that we've been talking about that are attached to a grade is when I give a grade, I most often want to just communicate to a student how they did on an assignment and how they've done in my class. But more often what they hear is me telling them or threatening them of course this is imagined but that i'm trying to jeopardize some future and so you know um higher student uh, parents with um who have been through the education system who are really aware of the stakes associated with doing well in the education system are much more likely to be attuned to these things and much more likely to you know lean on the system and find those gaps where you know you might ask a teacher whether they could reconsider the grade or is there a way to get extra credit uh, i think most educators have have experienced those students and know that that is part of uh, our current education system is that kind of playing the margins and that's definitely a i mean that's just a, a reality of our school system right now and joe i want to bring you into the conversation i know we covered a lot uh so far but is there anything that ethan has said that you would like to uh respond to? Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that um, Ethan has talked about is how um, the system that we have um, places so much emphasis on grades to cause that anxiety and to pull students away from thinking about learning. 
there are so many um, small ways in which this grading system that, um, as Ethan said, is really um, essentially fossilized from 100 years ago, is doing things and teachers are doing things inadvertently um, through their grading that is exacerbating that pressure um, and allowing um, particular families and students to lean on the system, as he said, or to um, advocate and kind of work around the margins. Um, and we don't want a system like that. I think every teacher would say, you know, they didn't go into the profession in order to grade. It's, for many teachers, it's the worst part of their, of their work. And unfortunately, um, in as much as grades have huge impact for students, teachers um, traditionally have gotten no training in how to grade. Um, when they are in their graduate programs or their certification programs, there's a lot of attention um, placed on curriculum design and assessment and even, uh, you know, classroom management, but there's, there's almost silence about how to grade. And so many teachers have no choice but to replicate how they were graded. Um, and, and in doing so, they're perpetuating a system that has so many um, uh, ways in which it undermines what they want to have happen in their classrooms and the environments of learning that they want to create. And your book, Grading for Equity, is primarily about grading bias. And you talk about how two students with the same exact academic performance at the same school, studying the same curriculum, can actually receive two very different grades. Can you kind of walk us through what happens there? Yeah. And, and just to be clear, I mean, the when I talk about um, equitable grading, it's really where grades are more accurate. So they accurately describe a student's academic performance, which grades generally do not do that now, um, where they're bias resistant, where the biases of teachers are not as in, uh, invited to be part of that grade, and where they're more intrinsically motivating. So in the example that you gave, you know, you could have two students taking, let's say, an Algebra 1 class in a, in a school where the two teachers are having identical curriculum, uh, same training, um, same demographics of students, but the students would perform would have the same understanding of algebra one, but would get different grades. And that's because teachers um, oftentimes are creating their grading systems in isolation and with no training, unfortunately. And so they're trying to create the best grading system they can for their classrooms. Um, but they are doing it differently because teachers are coming in with different ideas around, you know, should students receive consequences in the grade for coming in late or should they get extra points for turning things in early um, or for, you know, um, talking without raising their hand or should they get second chances on tests and teachers are developing these um, unique ways of grading in their classrooms so that what can happen is that the student who can have, who, who performs identical um, to each other can get different grades, not because of a difference in what they understand about the course content, but it, because of the different ways that teachers grade. Uh, and again, this is not um, an indictment of teachers. I mean, they are all incredibly dedicated and trying to create a grading system that promotes learning, that allows them to um, have the kind of relationships that they want to have in with their students, that uh, motivates them. It's just they've had never had access to the research on what our traditional grading systems do. And so they end up just creating it as best they can, often replicating the same harms um, that have been in our grading system for a long time, even as they undermine um, the effectiveness of their work. And without access to the research, and, and I think it's mind-blowing that they don't have 
uh, sort of training or learning on how to grade, is it hard to put together sort of consensus for teachers on how grading should be done? It's extremely difficult. Um, when you have professionals who haven't had training in doing something, and in the midst of a sort of a, a, a time in our uh, history of education where teachers are placed with incredible burdens on them for all the different roles that they play and all the different mandates placed on them at the school, state, federal levels. Um, grading um, becomes one of their, uh, what I call their islands of autonomy. They get to decide what grades their students get. They're in the best position to, to know who their students are, they know their curriculum the best, they know their instruction the best. And so they are in the best place to, to assign those grades and they protect that power, um, even as their, their power um, seems to be dwindling um, in many ways. Um, and so they protect that. And with no, um, with no common learning and understanding of the grading system or even a vocabulary to be able to talk about it constructively, um, many teachers protect their grading um, uh, sometimes vociferously, um, and they advocate to protect that um, because it really is a marker of their um, professional identity and autonomy and um, judgment. I got one more question for Ethan before we end, but I would love to take a call first from Kevin, who is in West Hartford. Kevin, you're on the air. Good morning. How are you? Good. What's your question or comment? Um, my comment is really just, uh, you know, underscoring anything that has to do with grades causing anxiety. You know, I feel like we get to a point where kids are so conditioned to tie their self-worth to their grades. I'm currently a law student, and for years the goal was to get to law school, you need to get the highest grades. Otherwise, those opportunities won't be open to you. And then once you arrive at law school with all these other, you know, high achievers, your grades are now curved, and you could get a 90 out of 100 on an exam, and you could still get a C. And at that point, the best opportunities will be, you know, closed against you. And you are sitting there wondering, I'm a failure. Am I a failure? Will things work out? So we're conditioning kids to tie their self-worth to achievements, and that's not the best. Thanks so much, Kevin, for sharing your story, and I'm sure that resonates with a lot of people. I'm going to ask Ethan to respond to what Kevin has to say. Is that something that you've been hearing? I mean, certainly something that we've been yeah. talking about. Yeah, I mean, what Kevin raises is a really important point and shows the, you know, grades can be motivating, um, but they can also be dispiriting, and they can definitely, um, as Kevin is suggesting, you know, if students feel like, oh, gee, I thought I was one kind of student and now I'm another. And it becomes this like this mark on them. Um, you know, they say, well, you know, I mean, it sounds like Kevin's done well as in law school. But, you know, a lot of students, if that happens early, they say, well, this is just not for me. I, I don't want to play this game. And so then we lose an opportunity to expose that student or get that student um, to develop an intrinsic uh, interest in learning or to to develop an understanding of of subject matter and and find a reason to continue on. It's yeah, by by making it the focal point, it's not surprising that students do identify themselves with their grades. I mean, even just colloquially, we will say things like, "Oh, well, you know, he's he's a he's a grade A student," and you know, we're we're trying to work in that statement. We're capturing a whole set of 
attitudes, dispositions, you know, about what kind of person they are. Um, I mean, even things like insurance companies will give you a discount if you're a good student. And so, you know, the idea that your grades kind of follow you everywhere and that's kind of part of who you are and your identity, um, it's not surprising, though it's, it's uh, as Ken's suggesting, it's, it's really discomforting that that's, that's the reality we've created. And real quickly, especially with what Kevin just shared and what you just said, Ethan, you know, how do we start to change this when the whole college system and beyond uh, is based off of GPA and a letter grade? I mean, it's, that is a really uh, important and difficult question. I mean, I think I think we have to to be realistic. Um, I mean, because we have so much opportunity tied up in our system, like we can't do a radical re, re overhaul. What we can do is try to create more spaces where students don't feel the pressure of grades. Um, and two really quick ways you could do that. One, we can allow students to overwrite their grades to, to make them less permanent so that it doesn't feel so consequential when you get that report card grade. We could also stop grading certain kinds of things or grade them in a pass-fail way so that it's, uh, it's an up or down. And again, it's not that there's not an assessment there, but that um, students don't necessarily feel like they're always being ranked on every single thing that they're doing. And so I think, and I would invite teachers and 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 educators to really think about, are there spaces that we can create for our students that insulate them from this constant uh, uh, pervasive, you know, sort of grade surveillance? Um, and, and that might be one way where we could at least reduce the temperature and not make everything about grading and then create some places where students can find some real joy in learning or intrinsic motivation in learning. You've been listening to Ethan Hutt, who is an associate professor of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, and also the author of Off the Mark, How Grades, Ratings, and Rankings Undermine Learning But Don't Have To. You can find a link to his book on our website, ctpublic.org slash where we live. Ethan, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks for having me. And Joe Feldman, who is the author of Grading for Equity, will be staying with us. And we will hear from one Connecticut school district working to eliminate grading bias. And if you're a student, teacher, or even a parent, you want, we want to hear from you. How important are grades? Give us a call, 888-720-9677, or leave us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. A lot of people struggle with sleep apnea and with CPAP machines. Dr. Carl Muller, a head and neck surgeon with Hartford Hospital, describes Inspire, a surgical alternative to the CPAP approach. Only about 60% of patients can tolerate CPAP real well. Inspire is a surgical alternative to CPAP. It's an outpatient surgery. It takes about two hours. And essentially what it does is it picks up when you're taking a breath and sends a two-second electrical pulse to the tongue, which causes the tongue to stick out a little bit and stiffen and prevent the airway from collapsing. Hartford Hospital has performed more than 200 Inspire therapy surgeries. If you've tried and failed with CPAP, you could be a candidate for this minimally invasive procedure. Patients with moderate to severe sleep apnea are candidates. There is a weight criteria, so you have to have a body mass index below 35, and you have to have to have tried and failed CPAP. To learn more, go to ctpublic.org slash health. 
This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. Today, we're talking about grading. And as we've learned so far, no two school districts or even two teachers grade in the exact same way. So two students that might have the exact same academic performance could receive two very different grades. And if that sounded confusing to you, we might have some answers for you soon. Joining us now to talk about improving grading practices and eliminating bias is great in grading is Norwalk Deputy Superintendent, Dr. Thomas McBride. Dr. McBride, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. And still with us is Joe Feldman, who is the author of Grading for Equity and CEO of the Crescendo Education Group. Joe, you know, you've been following along this conversation and we've been talking about all the intricacies of grading. Uh, What are those things that students receive or can get deductive credit for that has nothing to do with academic achievement like tardiness or disruption? Yeah, well, um, traditionally, um, we've used grading in lots of ways and teachers have used them in lots of ways in classrooms. And teachers um, not only want to report student understanding of the course content, but traditionally teachers also believe that they need to use grades as an extrinsic motivator for um, behaviors, non-academic behaviors. So things like, um, are you raising your hand and contributing to a discussion? Or, and you might get points for that or points subtracted or um, if you come in late to class, or if you have your syllabus signed, or if you bring in um, food for the canned food drive, um, or you know, turn in something early, uh, you get extra credit. Um, there's all kinds of ways that teachers include a lot of uh, information in the grade. And what we find is that when all of that non-academic information is included in the grade, it starts to warp the accuracy of the grade. So if a student maybe has a B understanding uh, of the course content, but always raises their hand or never comes late to class, they might actually have an A, even though they don't have an A-level understanding. And the the problem, the one of the many problems with that is that they might go then to the next grade level or um, to college or something like that and uh, believe that they have um, an A-level understanding of the course and of the content. And then they find that they're underprepared um, for that course. Um, and conversely, when students are penalized for non-academic information, uh, they may have B-level understanding, but then actually get a C or, or lower in the course because they come late to the class. Um, they actually are prohibited um, because of the ways that we use grades from accessing some of the opportunities that they might be very successful in. We're going to take a quick call from John in Windsor, who has a question on the different uh, levels of grading in different disciplines. Uh, John, you're on the air. Hi, thank you so much for this conversation. Go for it with your comment. Um, Yeah, I just got a question. I've read Mr. Feldman's book and um, be very interested to hear him comment on grading in, in different subject areas. So how does grading look different in a math classroom than it might look in a in an English classroom or a writing-based and discussion-based classroom. Thanks, John, for that great question. I would love to know as well. Joe, how do you respond to that? Well, in at its uh, heart, grading would have similar characteristics regardless of the discipline, where the teacher would um, describe what are the levels of understanding of the course content, um, and then make that transparent to students, and then the grade would reflect that understanding. Um, so, you know, if I'm teaching the Pythagorean theorem, I 
can describe for students what A-level understanding is, B-level understanding, et cetera. And then I would teach students so that they would be able to demonstrate the highest level. And I would assess them to see where they fall uh, against that, those different levels of understanding. And, would, and then the grade would represent that. I think what happens is that because, as I said um, earlier, teachers don't get any training around their grading, it starts to look very, very different in different disciplines. Um, where in certain classes, um, the idea of participation becomes the most important um, or the, um, the, the ways that they work with each other um, becomes the most important. And I think that um, when teachers start um, examining their grading and getting access to the research and some um, improved practices, they start to see a lot more commonalities in the ways that they grade. Dr. McBride, I want to bring you into the conversation. And you know, as we talk about how complicated the system is, your district is is going to be making some changes. So can you talk about what are some of the proposed changes uh, to your school district's grading policy? Yes. Uh, so uh, myself, along with a variety of stakeholders in Norwalk Public Schools, gathered together to engage in a book study uh, around Joe Feldman's book, Grading for Equity, to look at uh, specific strategies and structures that are uh, impactful to grading for our individual district and then specifically look at how it compares to our current district practices. And so from that, we looked at, we went chapter by chapter, uh, reading through all the recommendations and suggestions, and then looking to see the impact it would have on our specific district and identified six um, as a consensus of a variety of all of us coming together, six specific practices that we we are looking to particularly introduce uh, next year and roll out in specific stages that uh, are defined by the one, number one, retakes and redos, uh, the emphasis on rubrics, the no homework being graded, um, project-based learning, uh, minimum grades of 50, and the standards-based approach were the uh, ones that we were able to set up, settle upon and then provide a presentation to our policy committee for review um, and consideration that they are currently in the process of doing just that. And so with those specifics, you know, how are you hoping that they will help increase equity? So we took a lot of time uh, in, in de- determining which specific recommendations would provide the level of equity that we were looking to seek as a district. So prior to my arrival, Dr. Estrella, the superintendent, had partnered with uh, Dr. Eddie Fergus from at that time, Temple University, to engage in a, um, a disproportionality uh, study of our of our student achievement data, looking at uh, the individual students who were being suspended, looking at the individual students who are not enrolled in our advanced courses, as well as our special education. And so then we were thinking about what were the specific variables and factors that were preventing this level of proportionality that we were actually trying to create. And we came directly to this idea of grading and how at times it can be subjective. And so in order to create standardization, to ensure that we are able to, number one, be able to identify exactly what students know and to be able to support them, we had to have accurate information and data. And so Joe Feldman's book kind of came right on time when, when we talked about this idea of the, his pillars, of the accuracy pillar, uh, the idea of bias resistant, and the motivational pillar were all in alignment with us in that, in that regard. So we felt that when we think about our individual students and the, the circumstances that many of them are um, subjected to, uh, their current situations, uh, the individuals that they're engaging with in terms of their classroom. These were the the top six that really, if we could kind of get them right, we would be able to equalize our system as, as a whole. And this is kind of an obvious question, but you know, why do you think it's important to change the policy, especially today? 
that everything is, starts with policy. <laughs> Ironically, that's that's where real change actually happens. And so once it is on the books, then we are uh, we are held to that expectation. Now, I think that that's what we in the, speaking of those expectations, like these are the expectations that we're holding for ourselves in general. Like we are our, our district is focused on making sure that all of our students have access to a high quality education. That, and when we say all, we we are genuinely meaning all. And so the, the policy in place will make sure that actually happens. I'm going to take a quick call right now from Linda, who is in West Haven. Linda, you are on the air. Thank you. I just wanted to say after 48 years of being a special education teacher and college professor, I once met the director of ETS, Educational Testing Service, um, who they do the SATs, at a conference, Rick Stiggins. And I loved what he said. I know it can't apply all the time, but he said the highest form of assessment is self-assessment. Thank you for this great program. I'll hang up. Thank you so much, Linda, for sharing your comment. Uh, I would like to ask Joe to respond to to Linda and also uh, anything that jumped out from Mr. Bride, uh, Mr. Uh, Dr. McBride's uh, comments earlier. Yeah, I think the, the caller is um, talking about how um, important it is for students to know where they are in their learning um, the entire time. I mean, in contrast to what um, uh, Ethan talked about in the first segment, where grades were really hidden from students. Um, we want to make them as transparent as possible and the the ways that students are successful as transparent as possible. And so rubrics, one of the um, aspects that uh, Dr. McBride talked about, um, makes them transparent. And for folks who don't know what a rubric is, it's essentially saying, what do you have to know and be able to do in order to be successful in this class or this project? Um, another thing I'll, I'll just mention is that you know, in addition to being more accurate, what we find is that oftentimes when teachers are including non-academic information in the grade, like coming on time or, or behaviors in a class, they are often um, comparing students and judging them against an archetype of what a, quote, successful student is. And oftentimes that is um, how that teacher was when they were in school or um, some sort of idealized way that, you know, if you raise your hand, if you talk in a discussion, you learn more. Um, and we know that that's not true for all students. Some students, um, because they are shy or because they, you know, are more um, introspective or thoughtful, um, they don't participate in much as much. And so when we remove those kinds of um, behaviors and the biases that come with that, um, we're able to more accurately describe them and, and prevent those biases from warping the accuracy. So that's one of the things that we see happen is that teachers now recognize when they use um, more equitable grading, they find that they're not including those kinds of behaviors and therefore not subjecting students, even accidentally, to judging them against some um, criteria that don't necessarily reflect their level of understanding. You've been listening to Norwalk Deputy Superintendent Dr. Thomas McBride. Thank you so much, Dr. McBride, for being with us today. And coming up next, we'll learn more about grade inflation. And Joe Fellman, who is the author of Grading for Equity, will be staying with us. Are you already thinking about this term's report card? You can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live.
U.S., we tend to think of slavery as a Southern thing. Slavery in New England has been intentionally erased. The story we tell is this is family slavery. So it comes off as very benign and not dehumanizing. Coming March 18th, a special series, Unforgotten, Connecticut's Hidden History of Slavery. Visit ctpublic.org unforgotten. Funding provided by the Wadsworth Athenaeum Museum of Art and the Amistad Center for Art and Culture. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. As we've learned throughout the hour, every classroom, school district, and teacher has a different method of grading. But studies are showing that across the board, grading inflation is on the rise. Some researchers are trying to understand what this grade inflation looks like and why it's happening. Joining us now is Edgar Sanchez. He's a lead research scientist at ACT. And for our listeners who are not familiar, the ACT is a standardized test used for college admissions. And Joe Feldman, who is the author of Grading for Equity, is also still with us. Thank you so much, Edgar, for joining us today. Yes, thank you for having me. And, you know, we've gone through so much with this conversation, but do you mind starting with how do you define grade inflation? So grade inflation, uh, as has been mentioned, we're talking about high school grades and what is the composition of a high school grade. We've talked about the academic and the non-academic pieces that go into high school GPA. And the typical way that people will compare uh, or evaluate grade inflation is to take that high school GPA and compare it to some more objective measures, things like the ACT, the SAT, things like NAEP, and, and of course, exams. And so one of the definitions of grade inflation is where we see that high school grades are increasing. However, these more objective measures are either staying stagnant or falling. So the real crux of the problem is, is if that high school GPA increase really represents greater content mastery, we would expect that students would be able to demonstrate that content mastery on other forms of, of assessment. And so when we're seeing that mismatch or we're seeing that high school GPA is increasing, yet more objective measures uh, of, of achievement are not increasing, we're, we have to ask the question, what is really going on? Why are those grades going up, yet students can't demonstrate additional content mastery on other forms of content ach of achievement? And can you talk about what is causing grade inflation and what are some concerns around it? So the causes of grade inflation, you know, are certainly are, are myriad. We can talk about a lot of the pressures that are happening um, across the country. And, you know, our research really shows that grade inflation is systemic. Uh, it's common across classrooms, districts, and states. And so we really approach it uh, in the two studies that I've done at kind of a systems level, because we're not talking about individual teachers or, or individual classrooms. We're really talking about national trends. And when we think about the national trends, we have to think about things like what are the pressures that are being placed upon teachers and students for, for them to have the highest high school GPA possible. As has been mentioned, a high school GPA is used for college admissions. It's also used for course placement, but it's also used for um, applications for um, scholarships. Uh, so all of these pressures can really come together to force uh, the students and the teachers and the parents to come together to try to have the highest high school GPA possible to make sure that we're giving our students uh, the best opportunities. But that puts at risk a student coming into a situation in college where they believe that they are fully prepared for the next level of education, yet they might be underprepared for the courses that they're going to undertake. And 
I suppose with what you just said, you know, so what does the infl- inflation actually indicate? You know, are some students not getting mastery over a subject that certain grades are conveying? Yeah, so we looked at both uh, cumulative high school GPA as well as GPAs in English, math, reading, pardon me, social studies, and science. And we do see that there is grade inflation across the board from 2010 to 2021 in one study and from 2010 to 2022 in a second study. And we see that across the board, all grades are being inflated to a certain degree. Everyone is experiencing grade inflation, but not everyone is experiencing it at the same rate. So, for example, one of the findings that we found that we actually didn't expect to find was that Black students are actually seeing more grade inflation than other racial ethnic groups. Now, that's not to say that their GPAs are higher than other racial ethnic groups, just that the rate at which the grades are increasing is faster than other racial ethnic groups. Uh, we also saw things that, uh, for example, at schools that have uh, greater, pardon me, fewer pr- uh, proportions of traditionally underserved students, um, they saw um lower rates of grade inflation. So at schools with more white and Asian students, those students in that school saw greater levels of grade inflation. And it's one of those things where we can't really talk about this without mentioning the pandemic. And I'm imagining that the pandemic has exacerbated all kinds of things. But how has the pandemic impacted grade inflation itself? Yeah, one of the nice things about these studies is that we were able to go from 20 to 21 to 22. We saw prior to 20, the 2020 onset of the pandemic, there was a steady increase in grades uh, from 2010 up to 2020. But once we hit the pandemic in 2020 and up to 21 and 22, we saw a dramatic increase in the rate at which grades were going up. Um, and so we see that uh, um, for, for all race, ethnicities, for all income, all gender. But we did find, interestingly, that um, after the pandemic, we see that uh, the grades for math and science are actually increasing at a higher rate from 2021 to 2022 than we did see for uh uh, English and social studies. So there appears to be that this this dramatic increase in the rate at which uh, grades are being inflated uh, after the pandemic. And of course, we can talk about the, the changes that happened to uh, grading practices during the pandemic. As we all know, there was a, a dramatic shift that needed to take place because of the changes in the way that school uh, was being delivered. So there were some artificial floors put into place. So for example, schools would put into, po- into place policies that no one could fail, no one could get below a C, or you couldn't get below what you had before the pandemic. So that put this artificial floor on grades, which is which functioned to make sure everyone scored uh, at a higher level. Um, and then as the pandemic went from 20 to 21, that continued to increase the grades. And then from 21 to 22, we saw a slight correction, as I said, with uh, English and social studies, but math and science are STEM courses. Those were continuing to raise at that same high level, um, even from 21 to 22. So whereas now that we're getting a little bit away from the pandemic, we may be seeing a correction in uh, the grade inflation for some courses, but we're not for math and science. We've got about two minutes here, but I do want to ask Joe to respond. Uh, Joe Feldman, who is the author of Grading for Equity. You know, Joe, can you respond to what Edgar has to say so far? Yeah, I mean, um, for me, I, I just have a whole lot of questions um, about that. And I, I would also sort of caution um, folks from um, inferring too much around that. I, one of the questions I have is that, you know, when we think about great inflation, it's easy in the sort of broad sense to sort of take that and say, well, then at my school, like when students get A's, that it's uh, 
by definition, um, inflation, right? And we don't want us to think that there are only a certain number of A's that are allowed in a class. Um, I think one of the traditional ways of thinking is that, well, if you give too many A's in the class, it's too easy. And that's not true. In fact, what we want to say is we want every student to excel. And just because the there's more kids that hit a bullseye, that doesn't mean that the bullseye has gotten bigger. Um, so that's one thing. Um, the second is that you know, during the pandemic, a lot of schools put those policies in place really because there was not just um, so much more difficulty for students to understand, but so much more difficulty for folks to deliver instruction. Um, and the trauma that so many people experienced made it almost impossible, uh, not just to, to teach and learn in ways that we had done before, but it was impossible to then assess um, and grade. So I think there was a huge disruption. And, and as um, he said, you know, we're seeing some correction to that. Uh, I also think that there's lots of questions around sort of who's getting the great inflation um, and what does it mean that certain groups may have been receiving it for a long, long time. And now we're seeing less of it for some and more for others. Um, and there's a lot of pressure from parents to actually inflate the grades. I mean, if you ask individual parents, I'm sure they would say, well, I don't like grade inflation, but for my student, it's okay because it is so competitive. The pressure is so competitive that I'll push for my own child's grade inflation because so many large decisions are based on that. So I think it's just so incredibly complex. And I, and I would just want people to be curious and to keep asking more questions about this kind of information. Well, I just want to say real quickly that both of you got an A-plus from me, at least today. Thank you so much, uh, Edgar Sanchez, who is a lead research scientist at ACT, for being on the show today. Thanks, Edgar. And Joe Feldman, who was the author of Grading for Equity, thank you for being on the show this morning. Thanks a lot. I'm Catherine Shen. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Cat Pastor. Download where we live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening.